Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. The Atlanta Braves were founded in 1871 and are the oldest continuously operating professional sports franchise in America. After being in existence for over 150 years, there are countless unbelievable moments and monumental games from the team's history. This is the story of one of those games, as told by the people who were there. Behind the Braves presents The Day the Braves Caught Fire. As the 1993 Major League Baseball season neared, expectations around the Atlanta Braves had never been higher. Gone were the days of the team that spent most of the 1980s in last place. The 1991 worst-to-first Braves shocked the world by winning the National League pennant and fell just short of winning it all in an epic seven-game World Series versus the Minnesota Twins. The 1992 Braves proved that the previous season had been no fluke as they won their second consecutive National League pennant. And while they would fall short again in the World Series, this time to the Toronto Blue Jays, one thing was for certain. The Atlanta Braves had become a perennial World Series contender. Upon the conclusion of the 92 season, Braves general manager John Scherholz set out to make an already elite team even better. He sent shockwaves throughout the baseball world by signing Greg Maddox, who at the time was arguably the best pitcher in the game. But there was more work to be done former Atlanta Journal-Constitution Braves beat writer, I.J. Rosenberg. Well, a couple of things happened. First, of course, they picked up Greg Maddox. Um, I think that, you know, John Shareholds, the general manager, um, was looking for one more big arm. I don't think that at the beginning with Maddox that he felt he had any chance at getting him. Uh, and actually, Maddox took less money to come to the Braves. But he, so he was able to fill a big role, whether it was the first starter, second starter, or third starter, it didn't matter. And I think the other big thing going into the season, when they analyzed both 91 and 92 and what had happened in both of those uh, World Series, um, you know, Minnesota, they should have won, um, you know, made a bad base running mistake. But, but there were other things in that series that happened offensively that they, they just couldn't push across the plate in their losses. And then I think in 92, Toronto was the better team and they were the better team because they had the better hitting. Braves outfielder, Ron Gant. 1991, we make it to the World Series. Uh, I, a World Series, I still to this day think we should have won. I, I still think we were the better team, but we lost to the Twins in that World Series. We go back to the World Series in 92 and we lose to the Blue Jays. Uh, so we knew that we had the pieces uh, on the ball club to be able to make a run and get back to the World Series and have that chance to try to win, win one. Pitcher, Greg McMichael. This team had a lot riding on it. I mean, you think about we went and got the top free agent uh, Greg Maddox and you had a star-studded team as well that had been in the World Series the last two years so I, I believe you know I didn't feel it as much because I was a rookie but I knew kind of being around the guys that there was a lot of pressure on them because they didn't close the deal in 91-92 and here we had a team that was better than those teams and um, so I think we going into the season felt like that we had something to prove, but also we were expected to, to win and win a lot. As the season reached its halfway point, the Braves were sputtering. Their pitching staff was performing well as expected, but the offense, well, night after night, it seemed as though they couldn't get the big hit that they needed to push that winning run across the plate. 
As a result, the Braves had fallen to second place in the National League West standings, trailing the San Francisco Giants, and the deficit seemed to grow with each passing day. Their lineup needed a spark, and they needed it soon before it was too late. A fact that Ron Gant remembers well. The middle of that 93 season, uh, we were basically a 500 team. We were kind of under performing uh, as far as all the good pieces that we had and the pitching staff. Greg McMichael. Yeah, I don't think it was our pitching staff. It definitely was. You know, we were losing games, but not by much. And um, if you look at that lineup from you know top to bottom, there was there was definitely a need for uh, something in the middle that was anchoring. I mean, of course, you know, you had David Justice and you had Ron Gant, but and, and Terry Pendleton. But really, that was it. I mean, you think about catching was Olsen and Barry Hill and Sid was at first and and, you know, Blouser and Lemke and Otis. So, you know, the nothing that was scary. Right. Like, you know, you look at teams, a lot of times they have somebody in the middle and, you know, that person's scary. And of course, Ron, you know, Ron was good and and David, but, you know, they they needed some help. And of course, that that requires when you only have four guys that requires that all four of them be on. And um, and I think they just, you know, we got off to a slow start. I think the pitching was still pretty good. and um, it, But we definitely need, I mean, when you compare to what's going on today in today's game, you know, back then it was pitching and defense. And we definitely had those things. But it just seemed like we weren't, we weren't together the the hitting wasn't timely you know a lot of times when you're winning ball games you're winning three to two two to one four to three you have timely hitting along with the good pitch and the defense and we had the pitch and defense but the timely hitting wasn't happening so you you needed we needed a jump start and i think we all felt that we were kind of frustrated i mean dang we had we got behind 10 games and because the giants were they were they were rolling along pretty good and they had they had everything clicking and um, they they were clicking more on the offensive side, and they had timely pitching, and we were just kind of just missing a beat. And um, I mean, give John and Bobby a lot of credit because they knew it, we knew it. We as players, you just can't do anything about it, right? You try, but uh, it requires somebody coming in from the outside, and that's where John and Bobby were so good. Braves general manager John Sherholtz. It was easy for me to see, and anybody watching our team, we had a lot of guys, Ron Gant, David Justice, Ryan Klesko, who wanted to be the cleanup hitter because we didn't have one. We didn't have a pure cleanup hitter. And they would get into that spot in the lineup and they would have to think that you got to hit a little harder and swing a little bit more and drive the ball a little further. And it took them out of the game. John Sherholtz began working on finding the right piece to fix his team's lineup. And while there were many players' names being rumored as potential trade targets, one stood out above the rest. San Diego Padres first baseman, Fred McGriff. I.J. Rosenberg. You know, they were trailing. The Giants were better. And, you know, the Braves had to play chase the whole season. And I think by then, that point of the season, um, you know, it was, it was, I can't tell you exactly how many games they were behind, but it was like somewhere between five or seven games behind. I think they were behind like seven or eight at the All-Star break. So they knew they had to bring in a big hitter. And I think John had been working on that trade. Everybody liked McGriff. Um, we had started writing about McGriff, that he was somebody that they were looking for. Braves broadcaster, Joe Simpson. My recollection was there were other players out there, not just Fred, but there were some other players maybe that rumors had it that Braves had their eyes on. But uh, uh, the guy that was top of the list was Fred McGriff because you know, he hit 35 homers a year. You know, he drove in 100 runs a year. I mean, to add him to the Braves lineup was like uh, fairy tale stuff. There's no way we can get him. And then it happened. On July 18, 1993, the Atlanta Braves acquired Fred McGriff from the struggling San Diego Padres in exchange for minor league players Melvin Nieves, Donnie Elliott, and Vince Moore. Two days later on July 20th, the stage was set for McGriff to make his Braves debut against the St. Louis Cardinals. Ron Gant. And so that night uh, of the fire that, that day trading for Fred McGriff, we felt like 
he was that missing piece uh, that was going to make this thing uh, tick uh, and, and explode, basically. John Sherholtz. And once we got Freddie, the thing that was the most impactful on that was how he set up the entire lineup. He put everybody, we were able to put everybody in their exact place in the lineup, and Freddie went comfortably into the number four spot. Outfielder David Justice. I knew we got Fred that day. Okay, so I remember how exciting that was because I knew what an addition that was going to be for our lineup, putting him in between Ronnie Gant and myself. Fred McGriff. When I joined that team, we were uh, 10 games out of first place and I got traded from the uh, Padres and I come over there and they're like, oh man, Fred, you know, the Padres had such a good team. And then uh, they decided to tear it up. And so in the middle year, we're 10 games back. And uh, so it was like, come on. We need some help. With first pitch for that night's game set for 7.40 p.m., excitement for Fred McGriff's debut steadily built that afternoon all around Atlanta. As batting practice began, fans, members of the press, and McGriff's new teammates all eagerly awaited the first sight of him in his new uniform. But shortly before 6 o'clock, something else began brewing that attracted the attention of everybody in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Ron Gant. We were actually taking, we were actually on the field taking batting practice that day. Um, it was it was a normal day, except for we knew that we were getting Fred McGriff. Uh, everybody was excited about it. There was a lot of buzz around, you know, even not just the, the players on the team, but even the workers at the ballpark. I remember, you know, talking to a couple of the ushers there and they were like, I can't believe we're getting Fred McGriff from the Padres, man. And I was like, yeah, this is going to be good. You know, everybody was excited. I.J. Rosenberg. I was standing down by the third base dugout and I was talking to a couple of St. Louis players and we had, before we started seeing smoke or something, somebody had said that they think that there's a fire in the press box. And what we found out later, of course, was it, it started in the, I, I don't know if it was a radio booth or the TV booth, but it was the booth sitting next to the main press box. And then all of a sudden we started to see a little bit of smoke. And then, I mean, this thing moved pretty quickly. Greg McMichael. I remember going out for batting practice like always. Uh, that was the time where the pitchers would, uh, we called it feel and touch. So we had our throwing partners. My throwing partner was Steve Bedrosian, went out there. And, and so I remember doing, you know, our little uh, game of catch, Steve and I, after BP and and then we're just now we're shagging and we're watching groups, you know, one, two, three. And and all of a sudden we start seeing some smoke up there and in, in the press box. And we're like, hey, you know, look at that. I wonder what's going on up there. And that's that's odd. You know, and we're all just kind of looking at it and we, we nothing's really changed. It's up, you know, we're we're changing our perspective between the balls coming at us, catching them, throwing them in and looking at the smoke. And then a few of us got together and started talking about, oh, God, that, it's getting worse. What's going on? Second baseman, Mark Lemke. Uh, we're just in bat practice and somebody had caught a glimpse of it and just pointed it up and there's just a small fire and you figure it's going to get put out. You know, we had no doubt. Uh, they'll jump all over it, put it out, be done deal and won't even be talked about. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, uh, you know, I guess there was a lock on the door going into one of the suites and no one could get in there. And it just kept building and building and, and to the point where it was starting to get warm on the field from the fire. Even though it was hot in Atlanta, it was getting hotter. Ron Gant. We're in the middle of batting practice. All of a sudden we start seeing the smoke coming from the press box and... Uh, no one really knew what it was at first, but it kept getting bigger and heavier and the smoke kept getting darker and we were like, man, this is not good. So um, eventually it got so big that it just go back, you know, half of that section of the stadium pretty much was on fire. Pitcher Greg Maddox. I just remember standing in left field and we're sitting there and you kind of see like, is that a fire? And you're like, yeah, it looks like a little bit of a fire going on up there. And you know, no big deal. No reason to stop BP or anything. It's just a small fire. And uh, uh, all of a sudden, five minutes later, you kind of heard the boom or something happen. And it just kind of ignited. And, and then it was a fire. David Justice. I think I was right there when the fire first started. I was just standing there looking. We're like, man, it's, it's a fire. 
then all of a sudden it was like man that's a fire like for real like it was on fire like and then we we're just standing there just waiting to see the fire trucks or somebody come nobody was coming right so then but but you know i'd already had my exit uh my exit route i was gonna run out through right field i know it wasn't gonna burn the stadium down before i got out of right field so i was comfortable knowing that i could get away but it was amazing to sit and watch it pitcher tom glavin so i was pitching that day and you know in the old stadium they had uh what was what was then our video room which was very archaic uh was in the very back of, of the stadium behind the training room so you know literally you're in the bowels of the stadium um and i remember being back there and i was watching i was watching some video or watching something and and they've got you know all the all the monitors are back there with all the camera feeds throughout the ballpark and I wasn't really paying attention to the cameras, but I was I was watching some video or doing whatever. And and the next thing I know, I forget who it was, comes back there and says the stadium's on fire. And I was like, what? So sure enough, I look on one of the monitors, and, there, and 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 on that small little TV, which maybe was an eight-inch TV, it looks like it's a raging fire, right? And I'm like, oh my god! But then you're thinking in the back of your mind, you're thinking this is a stadium; it's concrete. What can what can burn, right? So I go running out there on the field, and sure enough, I mean there is just smoke billowing everywhere. I mean, and it's that dark black black smoke. And you look up at the press box, and the flames are coming out of the press box window, kind of kind of uh, rolling over the top of the facade above it. Um, and it's just like, oh, my God, what, what's going on? While players and personnel on the field watched in shock, media members and broadcasters who were working in the press box area quickly began to realize that they needed to escape. Sportscaster Steve Taylor. I was the uh, sports director at uh, WGNX, the call letters in, and we would do live shots before practically every home game. So I was out there a couple of hours early to get set up when the fire struck. And we heard the commotion of fire and our our camera woman, Carol Persley, who was the daughter-in-law of uh, Dave Persley, the trainer at the time, hung right in there, got the video, and then we headed for the door. They pushed us out. And there was just about a three second feeling of panic going through that smoke, like, when is this gonna end? And finally, we got to some fresh air. And but just for a second, I wondered how how much this had been engulfed, and was you know I in big trouble. But we scurried our way out. In fact, uh, Carol tells me I wanted to go back for the tripod, and she talked me out of that. So <laughs> I guess the station had to take a hundred dollar bite on that one. Joe Simpson. Let me kind of draw this picture of the press box at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Uh, it it was very circular, where you could sit in one booth and see across into other booths. Uh, and the, the partitions were, generally speaking, glass, so you could see through various booths. Um, in those days, TBS and radio shared the broadcasters. For four and a half innings uh, on that particular day, Skip and I were going to be opening on TV, and then in the middle of the fifth inning, we would go to radio and finish the game over there. So when I got to the ballpark, I put... I got all my stuff out on the TV side, scorebook and all that stuff. And then I took my briefcase around to the radio booth because that's where I was going to finish up and left my briefcase there. So my first notice of what was going on was sitting in the TV booth where I could see smoke coming out of the radio or, or the booth right next to the radio booth, which happened to be uh, John Sherholt's private booth. I didn't know what was going on, and at first it was just a little smoke belching out of there, and it didn't seem like that big a deal, and then it became a very big deal. They had some uh, food trays in there that had the sterno under them that was keeping the food warm. I, I think the wind blew one of the curtains in that room into the sterno that started it all, and it became a fully engulfed fire. So when the smoke started turning really black and belching out, I got up, grabbed my stuff, ran down to the radio booth and grabbed my briefcase. By the time I grabbed my briefcase and I came out of the radio booth, I couldn't see. And I mean, I had to get down really low, uh, not quite on my hands and knees, but I had to get really low to see my way out of the main exit out of the press box. That's how quickly it engulfed that. And I'm not talking about flames. I'm just talking about black smoke. You could not see your hand in front of your face. So, um, 
got my act together a little bit once I got outside the main press box door and went to the elevator to go downstairs. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if the stadium was going to burn down. I didn't know how bad it was going to be. But I got down to the clubhouse, went in the dugout, went out on the field where I could look back up to see what was going on up in the press box. And it was going. It was going on. You know, flames coming out, wrapping around the upper deck. I.J. Rosenberg. And then what happened, I was standing next to Joe Torre, and um, we were just talking. All of a sudden, one of the beams exploded. Greg McMichael. And all of a sudden, boom, there was an explosion, and we all felt it. I mean, it was like it hit us, and we started backing up to the warning track. And we started backing up further and further, and the flames got bigger, and we're like, oh, my gosh, we've never seen anything like this. It had gotten so hot up in the booth that, you know, one of the old steel beams exploded, and it was like a bomb went off. IJ isn't kidding. Here is the actual audio of the explosion. Joe Simpson. One of the beams in the stadium had gotten so hot that it just blew up, basically. It, it separated from wherever it was welded, and that was really scary. I.J. Rosenberg. That was when everybody ran to center field. I mean, we're lucky that the beam didn't blow out. It blew in. So a lot of the shrapnel ended up in the, in the Braves announcement booth and in, in the press box. But I'll never forget that sound. I mean, it was truly like a bomb blowing up. And I was kidding Joe Torre afterwards because Joe says he's, he hasn't run that far, that fast in years since he, you know, since he played. But we all got out to center field and turned around, and I mean, it, it was just raging. And uh, at that point, um, you know, they did not take, they did not ask us to leave the field. Um, so at that point, for myself. Um, you know, I was talking to different players, and I talked to Bobby Cox. I remember getting him on the report for WSB. But it was serious. At that point, we knew it was serious. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you started to see the water, uh, you know, putting it out. It took them a while to put it out. Joe Simpson. Then there are firemen who had made the scene by that time who were walking out on a little ledge from our radio booth to try to get some water into that area where the fire was really going strong. And they were precariously hanging, you know, wrapping around the the walls to try to spray some water in there to ultimately put it out. While the fire was obviously a serious matter, Braves players on the field, such as Mark Lemke and shortstop Jeff Blauser, still managed to find a little bit of humor in the whole situation, mainly in the form of some candid photography. Tom Glavin. You know, we're playing the Cardinals, and we're all on the field kind of just watching this thing. And and the greatest picture of all time was taken during that fire with Blauser and Lemke, uh, <laughs> which was fantastic. Pitcher Steve Avery. The thing I remember most about it is the picture that I have, uh, or I saw of Blauser and Lemke. They, they were standing on the field, and somebody came down and took their picture with the fire in the background, and then they got their arms around each other. It was, just, <laughs> it was one of the best pictures I've ever seen. Greg Maddox. And I remember uh, a month or two later seeing the, one of the greatest baseball pictures I've ever saw of uh, Blouse and yeah. Limmer. <laughs> With the fire, the, fire in the background. Fire yeah. in the background. They're just hanging out like, you know, <laughs> hey. Mark Lemke. Me and Blouser had Walter Victor, uh, who was the team for, photographer, Walter Victor, take a photo of us. With, the, with it going pretty good at this time now. We get done with that picture. Not even really thinking how it's going to come out or whatnot. We just thought we'd just, just a couple of goofballs, just take a picture. And um, we got done with that picture, I'd say within three to five minutes, there was a huge explosion. Something blew up. The, both teams, it was the Cardinals on, we were playing that day, were out in center field. That thing blew up. I thought the stadium was going to blow up. I really did. I.J. Rosenberg. Lemke and Blauser uh, took the great shot. Uh, you know, Walter, who was, you know, part of the team, he was part of the Braves family, took that great picture. And, and at that point, the fire is really starting to get out of control. And if you look at the picture, you have to say to yourself, 
was that a smart thing for, for Mark and Jeff to do? Uh, but that was typical Mark and Jeff. I, I can't even tell you in the clubhouse what went on. They were back in the corner of the Fulton County locker room or clubhouse for the Braves. And, I mean, they did all kind of pitchers. I mean, it was crazy, those two guys. So it wasn't surprising uh, that they were the ones that took that pitcher. Joe Simpson. Jeff Blauser and Mark Lemke arm in arm with the blaze going on behind them. That is one that ought to be in the Braves Hall of Fame somewhere. It was such a classic photo. Meanwhile, Ron Gant also decided to take part in the photo fun by posing in front of the raging fire with both arms raised high in the air, a bat in his left hand, and a giant laughing smile painted across his face. One of the things I do remember about right before I took took that photo, I I believe I was um, I was doing an interview with Jeff Hollinger, and uh, that's when the explosion happened, and we were both like, "All right, man, I'll see you," uh, you know, and we kind of started walking towards the outfield. But Walter, our photographer, uh, was taking snapping photos. So I was like, I have to get a photo of this. And the reason why I took the photo like that, it was is because I knew it was a huge day because we're getting Fred McGriff. But I was like, how could this happen on the same day that we do make this trade? And that's why I kind of had my hands up in the air. Having retreated from the press box and onto the field, Joe Simpson looked on in amazement at the now destroyed area from which he was supposed to broadcast that night's game. He shares that memory with... Perhaps a little bit of help from his late broadcasting partner, Pete Van Weeren. At that time, Ted Turner and Jane Fonda were an item. And I was standing next to Jane on the field. And this is hours before the game was going to start. But she was there, and so was Ted. And uh, she was talking about the fire. And she goes, oh, my gosh, that's where you work, isn't it? I said, yes, it is. And as we are doing this taping... Pete Van Weeren just fell off the wall. So he's, I think he's, uh, I think he's, it's his way of saying his picture falling off the wall is him saying, that's exactly right, Joe. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Jane says, oh my gosh, that's where you work, isn't it? I said, yeah, it was. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With the Atlanta Fire Department having successfully distinguished the fire, the question now became, would the game be played? The game was originally set to begin at 7.40 p.m., but when 740 rolled around, that decision had yet to be made. Baseball fans all across the world tuned in to TBS at 740 Eastern Time, expecting to watch that night's Braves-Cardinals game. Instead, they were greeted with a live shot of Joe Simpson and Skip Carey standing on the field at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium to deliver an update on what had transpired that afternoon. Hello again, everybody, along with Joe Simpson, Skip Carey, back with you at the ballpark, where so far tonight, no baseball. You can see the fire inspectors upstairs working to determine whether or not there will be baseball tonight. Joe, it was a scary moment, about 10 to 6 tonight, huh? When all the smoke started belching out of one of the luxury boxes upstairs, it was a pretty ugly scene, and uh, needless to say, everybody was a little frightened. A loud explosion coming out of the booth right next to where John Scherholtz normally sits. And then it spread over to uh, our radio booth, and it was completely engulfed in flames. We lost all our radio equipment, of course, for our radio broadcast, and we'll have to make other arrangements for that, certainly tonight, if we're able to get this game underway. And the, the point there is nobody really knows yet whether there'll be baseball tonight or not. The fire inspectors are still doing their job, and you certainly can't rush those people in that important undertaking. As soon as they know, they'll let us know, and as soon as we know, you'll be the next to know. Uh, as you know, Fred McGriff was slated to make his Atlanta debut tonight. We don't know what the deal is. Uh, we'll let you know as soon as we do. We can point out to you again that no one was hurt or killed in this fire, which could have been much more serious and would have been really if it had happened at 7 or 7.30. That would have been an absolutely horrible thing to, to witness, I'm afraid. And the, the smoke was really the problem. The smoke 
filled up the press box area. Everybody was really rushing to get out of there, and I'm just glad that there wasn't a big congested area outside the press box so that everybody could move freely. We can tell you that if there is baseball, two or three sections back behind home plate have been blocked off, and will not fans will not be allowed to sit there tonight, but that's all we know at this point. We don't know if the game will be played or not. We do know the Giants won their game today, so the Braves are nine and a half games out. 8-3 was the final score. Bill Swift won his 13th game of the year. All in the family comes along next on TBS, and then we'll be back with an update. While fans at home waited out the delay with reruns of Archie Bunker, players and personnel at the ballpark still did not know if baseball would be played that night. Pitcher John Smoltz. You're in disbelief, obviously. I mean, that uh, that's the last thing you think is going to happen when you're standing outside getting ready for a big league game. And Of course, we got the news that uh, we just pulled off a major trade, and all the things that came with that day, I, I look back and I, I can see the flames like it was yesterday out of the press box and didn't know if we were going to play the game, right? There was some uncertainty on whether we we're going to play the game or not. And I think everyone's just kind of waiting around to figure out what was going to go on. I.J. Rosenberg. And at that point, you know, I remember calling my wife saying, you know, there's no way they're going to play this game. Uh, but the Braves president back then was Stan Kasten and, of course, McGriff. You know, it was a big night. They had, so, you know, I don't know if they had sold the place out, but they were going to have 40,000 people there. And, um, you know, basically the situation with, with Stan was, you know, he, he said, play the game. Hello again, everybody. Skip Carey back with you at the ballpark in Atlanta where we have some news as of now, and the fire marshal still isn't 100% sure, but barring any last-minute discovery of some structural damage, it appears that this game will start between 9.30 and 9.45. That's what they're shooting for now. So we're going to operate on the assumption that this game will be played. You saw the fire marshal and Reggie Williams, who heads up the stadium authority, Stan Caston, John Sherholz, all the gang trying to work this out. Some sections, uh, mostly behind home plate, have been closed off, and that's the reason why you see the fire that hit us about 10 minutes to 6 tonight. It was a scary thing, but there were no injuries. But there's apparently no structural damage. If there is, trust me, they won't play the game. But they're going to try to play it, and our best estimate is somewhere between 9.30, probably closer to 9.45, the game will be played. And maybe we have a little extra news. Here's the president of the team, Stan Caston. What's up? We just met with the fire marshal and the building inspector. Everything is fine. He's walking it one last time. Uh, we expect to get definitive clearance in five minutes, and hopefully we'll have a first pitch at 9.40, maybe 9.30, something like that. That's what we're pushing for right now. It looks like we're a go. Great, Stan. Thanks. Okay. Okay, that's uh, straight. No, no no, offense intended, but straight from the horse's mouth. Game will start between 9.30 and 9.45, and it looks very good. But it wouldn't be right this time of the night after a two-hour fire delay if we didn't let you hear a little and see a little of Andy Griffith. Then we'll be back somewhere in this ballpark to try to broadcast a game for you. With the decision now having been made for the game to be played, the next question for sports writers and broadcasters alike was, how are they going to cover this game? And with what? After all, they had to assume that any belongings of theirs that they had left behind in the press box would be reduced to nothing but ashes. I.J. Rosenberg. Usually I would get to the park about 2.45, 3 o'clock. And, uh, you know, I would go upstairs uh, to the press box. And I had the seat because, you know, I was the Atlanta Journal-Constitution beat writer. So we had the seats right behind the plate in the press box. And I'd, I'd put my bag down. And sometimes I would take the time to set my computer up. But this time I didn't. And I was very fortunate not to. And I left my, you know, I put my bag, my backpack on, my, on the table and, and then got my notebook and my recorder and went downstairs. After watching what happened, there was no, there was, I thought in no way my stuff was, it was gonna either burn up or melt. So finally they got it out and the fire chief cleared it. And we went up there and uh, I remember walking through um, and the whole play, I mean the whole press box was just burnt. And I walked outside and on the table was my bag. And it had, you know, it had, it was wet, but I picked it up, got out of there. They told us, get your stuff. If it's still there, get it, get out. And I, I took it out of the press box and somehow, some way, the computer, everything inside no, had not gotten wet. At that point, we were told um, that we were gonna work on the club level uh, right next door to the press box. And, um, you know, we were just riding away and I was, you know, 
uh, you know, I sat with it on my lap and somehow, some way, that battery lasted because I don't think there was any outlets around. Nobody had any extension cords. Much like IJ's computer, broadcaster Pete Van Weeren's scorebook was also left in the press box, and he was certain that it would be destroyed. Van Weeren shared his story later that evening alongside his broadcasting partner, Don Sutton. When we were told to get your personal stuff and get out of here, we grabbed up everything we could. I left my scorebook over in that press lounge. And you see what happened to the uh, press box, so you got to figure that's ashes. But just as a, on a lark, I thought after the fire was out to go back in there and see what was left of it. It's perfect. There's a little dust on it. It's, a, it's got a plastic cover, and it's, you know, cardboard and paper. What they're thinking of doing is uh, the new uh, press box are going to build out of the material that they ought to. They ought to. I couldn't believe it glass and water all over the place and there sat my scorebook dry as a bone. Perhaps the biggest challenge in the ballpark that night belonged to the Braves broadcasting crew. Doing a couple of live shots on the field earlier in the evening was one thing, but producing and broadcasting an entire game with no TV or radio booths and limited equipment? Well, that was going to be tough. Joe Simpson. Everybody thought the game would be postponed, naturally. Ted insisted, Ted Turner insisted that the game go on, let the show go on. And that put a scramble mode on Glenn Diamond, the producer, and all the people at TBS that work behind the scenes in the truck to figure out how in the heck are we going to do this? So they began to work on that. They set up an area um, on the same level as the press box, but in the stands set up some tables on the tops of chairs and we're fixing it up so that we could sit in a bleacher seat and work off this table. So it was pretty cool in that all the engineers and all of the technicians put this together to get us on the air. Was not easy. A side note to this was that Don Sutton left. He He knew we weren't going to play. And he went to a restaurant downtown, one of his favorite hangouts, and went down and had had dinner and had a glass of wine or two. And finally, when it was getting close to, you know, we're actually going to do this, Glenn Diamond called Don and said, where are you? And he said, I'm at the uh, so-and-so restaurant. And he went, well, we're going to put the game on. We need you to come back. <laughs> so Don was in shock, but he got back and got there in time to be involved in the broadcast, and the show did go on. With the fire long gone and everyone preparing for the game, the attention began to focus back on the Braves' debut of Fred McGriff. And while McGriff was eager to get started with his new team, he wasn't sure he was quite ready to play. Uh, it was quite interesting because uh, when I was in San Diego, probably two weeks before that, we had a big brawl. And, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Sheffield, I, I was playing with Gary Sheffield in San Diego, and Sheffield hit two home runs off this pitcher named Trevor Wilson with the Giants, right? And so Sheffield was hitting in front of me, okay? And the pitcher, he hits me, right? You know, like, so, so everybody in the ballpark knows that it was on purpose. And, and so I charged the mile, you know, and everything, but trying to throw, trying to throw a punch, I, I, I hurt my rib cage, right? So now I hurt my rib cage. So now I got suspended for a few days, but the Padres, uh, took care of it for me. But anyways, uh, now I get traded, right? So Sherholtz calls me and says, yeah, Fred, you've been traded to to the Braves, da-da-da. And I'm telling him, like, dude, I can't play right now. <laughs> My ribs are hurt. I can't play. So he was like, oh, you, you can't come up here with your ribs hurting, you know? So I'm like, okay. So I decided to just go home to Tampa. So I go home to Tampa for a few days. I'm taking some oral medicine and everything to help my ribs. So now I figured I stayed home for three or four days and then I decided, okay, let me try to go to uh, to Atlanta, right? And so I tell myself, because I had driven to Atlanta before, so I tell myself, okay, Fred, if you leave about 12 o'clock from Tampa to get to Atlanta driving the speed limit, it's going you're going to get there by six o'clock. Right. And I know the game is seven something. Right. So there's no way you're going to be in this lineup if you get there around six o'clock. So <laughs> so that's what I did. I go and I leave at 12 and I get around six o'clock. I go and walk into that clubhouse. and I look at that lineup 
<laughs> my name's in that lineup. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh boy, oh boy. This is cover, right? So, so that's how, so the man upstairs is watching after me, and the press box catches on fire. And so now, um, I got all this extra time to go into the training room. And the trainers are just working on my ribs and so forth because I'm in this lineup and everything. <laughs> and the game didn't start till thinking 9, 39, 40 at night, you know, instead of the, the regular game. It mm-hmm. started real late. With Fred McGriff now in Atlanta and in the lineup, the stage was set. And in the minutes before the game's first pitch at 9.40 p.m., Joe Simpson and Skip Carey readied themselves for what was sure to be a broadcast they would never forget. You know what? It was such a challenge that I think uh, Skip and I both really embraced the challenge that uh, we can do this. You know, we'll make the best of whatever we have. I don't remember if we had full replay abilities and, you know, I know we had monitors uh, that that we needed if we needed them, uh, which is a, another testament to, to the technical people. Um, but we didn't, uh, there were no complaints. There was no griping, no whining. It was like, I'll be darned. You know, we're going to be able to get pull this off. Hello again, everybody. Along with Joe Simpson, we're finally ready to play some baseball at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium as the Braves and Cardinals will. Meeting game two of this three-game series. You know, we've had a two-hour fire, fire delay here. The press box is a shambles, so we've moved down the club level, down the right field line. You see what caused our problems earlier in the day. And, Joe, I'm amazed that they're going to get this game started as quickly as they are. Absolutely incredible. And a tribute, I think, to our folks, too, to be able to set this equipment up this quickly and get this game on the air for you folks also. It's been sort of a, forgive me, but sort of a fire drill here the last (laughs) few minutes. But you're right. Our people have done a great job, and I'll tell you what, we're doing Fred McGriff a disservice, I think. Everybody's pointing the finger at him. He can't hit 150 home runs and drive in 600 runs. He's going to need some help from some of his teammates. He's batting cleanup in the lineup tonight, and hopefully he can help the other guys around him. And certainly around the press area, it's going to need a little help, too, in the days to come. We, we opened on TV, and Pete and Don were on radio, and they weren't that far away from us, you know, just a few feet away. And I remember looking over, and Pete had two cigarettes going. So he was a little bit on edge, maybe a little more nervous than we were. But uh, maybe that's why his picture fell off the wall. He remembers having two heaters going at the same time. But it happened. We got it done. And we're ready to go. And Fred McGriff is at his station. After the way this day has gone, I'm surprised he's not back in his car on 75 headed back to Tampa. Talked to him before the game, and he agreed he'll never forget his first day in a Braves uniform. Well, here we go. And Alisea takes the strike. 0-1, and we're underway. And so, after all of the commotion and drama that had ensued on that evening at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, the game was finally underway and on the air. And, much like the players taking pictures on the field earlier in the day, the Braves broadcasters found plenty of opportunities to find a little humor in the whole situation. But at first glimpse, it looks like Tom Glavin is really smoking tonight. Oh, don't start. (laughs) Don't start. Pete Van Weeren, Don Sutton with you from Club Level Box 207 here at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Well, they served chicken in the press room tonight, wound up a little extra crispy. (laughs) Here we go. I've always said I, I enjoy doing broadcasts like, you know, a couple of fans sitting in the stands watching the ball game. Well, I got my wish tonight. Yes. I've already been hit by a bag of peanuts. Had court, Coke poured all over me. Pretty good feeling. Poor baby. One and two the count. The screaming that you may be hearing in the background is our official scorer, Mark Fredrickson, who normally speaks over a PA system in the press box. Is now become the new town crier. <laughs> I went over there to check out the radio booth a little bit ago. And uh, you know that fan I brought to help keep us cool? That, that a $274 fan? Yeah. Yeah, that's... Actually, I think it was a $27.40 fan. I pop foul out of play. I don't think we're going to be able to use it anymore. No. A little tough to take ground balls when a hook and ladder is parked right across home plate. <laughs> 
Sutton told me when he when he left the press area that he was actually feeling along the floor of the press area when he got to the outer door. It was that intense and that dark in our press room area. And it'll take him months to get the smoke out of his hair. This is like the it's like the old days here. The PA man should have a megaphone. While the Braves broadcasters were entertaining themselves and the fans at home by making jokes, the players on the field were busy doing what baseball players often do, looking for a competitive advantage. Greg McMichael. They had to turn out a bank of lights. And so when you came out for the game and they said, hey, we're going we're gonna to try to get it in. And then we went out there and, of course, you know, you go out to the bullpen and you're watching the game. You're like, going, man, it's that's kind of odd. You know, there's this whole bank of lights out behind third base. And I remember I pitched that night, so I remember it was a little bit different. Of course, it's, I love those kind of things because it probably throws the hitter off more than it throws me off because I'm, you know, I don't want him to see very well, right? So I'm trying to, it's like the shadow. Can the shadow just be right in between the mound and home plate all the time that I pitch? I would have been probably in the Hall of Fame if that would have happened. <laughs> <laughs> the players and broadcasters weren't the only ones enjoying the uniqueness of the night. A group of Atlanta firefighters, still dressed in full uniform, had remained in the ballpark for the game after extinguishing the fire. About foul back again. Good, the firemen are going to get themselves a souvenir. Yeah. They deserve it. Yeah, they do. Got their own little section tonight. Yeah, they're in tall cotton, aren't they? They're getting a luxury box for free tonight. That's right, but no vendors. <laughs> the Atlanta firefighters received a well-deserved ovation for their heroic efforts earlier in the day. But the biggest ovation in the ballpark that night was reserved for Fred McGriff as he walked up to the plate for the first time as a member of the Atlanta Braves. A standing ovation for Fred McGriff as he leads off the bottom half of the second inning. And he tried to jack one right out of here, and he missed it 0-1. He's been around. He's a veteran player. But I'm sure he feels some butterflies. We put so much pressure on this guy. It's really unfair. The 0-1. One guy alone cannot make up the difference of nine games. One guy can help other people around him and perhaps help them get some better pitches to hit. Ground ball to first. Perry has it. He'll take it himself in time. One down. McGriff gets a hand as he bounces out. That'll make him feel good. Despite the fact that McGriff grounded out in his first at bat, Braves fans were clearly still very excited to have him in the park and on their team. However, that excitement soon turned to despair as the St. Louis Cardinals struck first with the game's first run. Lemke in behind the runner. Glavin goes to the plate. A little swinging butt. Tommy off the mound in good shape. Going to have to hurry. Threw it low. It gets by McGriff. A run will score. Let's see how far Witten goes. He is racing for third. And it's one to nothing. And then they scored again. Swung, grounded into left field. That scores the run. And again. Well hit to right field, but they had him played perfectly. Justice can't make the catch. It's over his head, and a run is going to try to score. He'll score easily. Pagnazzi is at second. I thought Justice would catch that ball, but it got over his head. And it's three to nothing. And again. The three, two, they run, line drive, right field, base hit. A run is in, the other runner races to third. They missed the cutoff, man, but Zeal is unable to move up, and he went the other way, and it's four to nothing, and the Braves' problems continue. And again. Wild pitch, it pops right back. They got a shot at the plate, he is safe. started to make the play himself then decided to throw it and on a bang bang play they beat the ramp. Gilkey has scored and it's five to nothing. The excitement that had buzzed throughout the ballpark only an hour earlier was all but gone as the Braves found themselves in the midst of yet another poor offensive showing. Well it was very scary before the game and now if you're a Braves fan it's a little scary during it. The Braves have not been ten or more out since the last day of the 1990 season. Mm. And they're not 10 out yet, but they're nine and a half at the moment and trailing five nothing. As the Braves TV and radio broadcast teams prepared for their mid-game switch, 
Skip Carey signed off of the TBS telecast with a hopeful message. Pete Van Weeren, Don Sutton will join you at the end of this half inning and hopefully we'll do a more profitable job than we've been able to for you Braves fans. As Skip and Joe moved to the Braves radio booth, Pete Van Weeren and Don Sutton, despite the score, happily settled into the TV broadcast. We go to the bottom half of the fifth inning and what has been quite a night here at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Pete Van Weeren, Don Sutton joining it now. It's been all Cardinals. And Don, uh, good to see you. Good to see Skip. Good to see Joe. Good to see just about everybody after our little adventure tonight. I'll tell you what, some people deserve some large bouquets and some medals of valor for the job that they did handling this tonight. And it is... Uh, It was impressive. It's unfortunate that we did have the fire, but thank God nobody was hurt. As the game moved to the bottom of the sixth inning, the Braves were in desperate need of something to turn the game around. After Mark Lemke led off the inning with a flyout, pinch hitter Bill Pakoda picked up a one-out base hit to left. That brought Deion Sanders to the plate. Ground ball headed to right field. It's a base hit for Sanders. Two in a row, and the Bays with a little something going here in the bottom of the sixth inning. It'll bring Jeff Blauser to the plate. A mere couple of hours after having taken his now famous photograph, up to the plate steps shortstop Jeff Blauser. 1 0 to Blauser. To left field. Deep. Back to the wall is Gilkey. Home run, Blauser. for Jeff Blauser, his seventh of the year, his 36th, seventh, and eighth RBI. And all of a sudden, the Cardinals are within shouting distance. It's 5-3. Still only one out in the bottom of the sixth, and here's Ron Gantt. Base hit for Gantt. That's four base hits in a row. And what better theatrics? Braves down by two. And the hitter, and representing the tying run, newcomer Fred McGriff. After a day full of drama and emotion that no one could have predicted, the weight of the world now seemingly rested on the shoulders of the newest brave, Fred McGriff. Let's see if McGriff can keep it going. To center field and deep. Back to the wall is Jordan. It's out of here. This is exactly why the Atlanta Braves went out and acquired Fred McGriff. He can run for mayor tomorrow and win. A fire marshal tonight and win that in a landslide. The sixth inning would end with the Braves and Cardinals tied up at five, but the momentum in the game had clearly shifted toward the home team's favor. The Braves send 10 men to the plate. They put five on the board. One big swing of the bat by McGriff, a two-run homer, a three-run homer by Blauser. And if you don't like this inning, you're a Giant fan. At the end of six, we're tied at five. With the Braves having rallied to tie the game, everyone in the ballpark knew what a huge boost a game like this could provide, if they were able to win it, of course. I think the acquisition of Fred McGriff gives the Braves belief Remember the last two years, how memorable some of their wins were coming from behind? That has been a real struggle for Atlanta this year. And I think the bottom half of the sixth inning alone will show the rest of the members of the Braves Ball Club that, hey, we can still do that. Oh, a win like this, if they can come back and win it, it's something that'll help you for weeks and even months. As the game moved to the bottom of the eighth inning, the Braves and Cardinals remained all tied up at five. After David Justice led off the inning with a single, Third baseman Terry Pendleton stepped up to the plate, intending to bunt Justice to second. He gets the bunt down this time, fielded by Cormier. He bobbles it, picks it up and throws, and Perry bobbles it. Everybody's safe. Here comes Justice. The throw home, safe. Braves lead 6-5. First Cormier bobbled it, then Perry bobbled it. Justice comes all the way around to score, and the Braves have taken the lead. 
With Pendleton still on base and pinch hitter Francisco Cabrera intentionally walked, Deion Sanders stepped back into the batter's box with a chance to provide the Braves with a little extra insurance. Cabrera off first, Pendleton off second. And the 1-0 pitch on the way, and it's lined in the left field for a base hit. Terry Pendleton gets the green light around third. Here comes Gilkey's throw, Pendleton safe. Go to second, they've got Deion Sanders hung up. Now Cabrera breaking home, the throw home by Perry. Cabrera safe. Two-run score, perfect execution on the bases, again by the Braves. 8-5 Atlanta. And with that, all that was left was to put the Cardinals away in the ninth. Two outs, ninth inning, 8-5 Atlanta. All the fans who are still at the ballpark on their feet now. On a night that we'll never forget, maybe the Atlanta Braves players won't either. This might be the springboard game they've been looking for for a long time. Two and two, the count of Ozzie Smith. On the ground is short. Rafael Belliard has it on the first, and the Braves win after trailing 5-0. A five-run rally keyed by a Fred McGriff homer, and then three runs in the eighth to give the Braves a come-from-behind victory and keep them nine games back of the San Francisco Giants. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Tom Glavin. You know, it was, it was kind of a very fitting kind of apropos uh, or, you know, a, an omen, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, we ended up playing the game that night, and I was pitching. I didn't pitch very well, and we got behind. Uh, and sure enough, Freddie Mac, Freddie Mac, crime dog, who we got, you know, that big trade, hit a big home run that night, and it really was kind of the, like that kickstart to us, us, not literally, but figuratively, just catching on fire that second half of the year. Uh, so it was, it was a pretty crazy night. Joe Simpson. It was amazing how... Uh, everybody used that as the benchmark, you know. Uh, well, since the fire, the Braves have gone such and such, you know, record-wise. And um, he was such a valuable addition to the club and a great person and um, fit right in. Ron Gant. A lot of people said, I believe even um, even Ted Turner said it, it was an omen. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the stadium caught fire and so did we. I mean, that was that's the saying from that day. And, you know, after that, we just blew everyone away the, the, the rest of the season. Sportscaster Steve Taylor. From that night on, the Braves went 51-17 and 17 the rest of the season to finish with 104 wins and win the division. So I guess the crime dog definitely uh, made a difference. Greg McMichael. When John and Bobby went out and made that trade, and then all of a sudden Fred comes in and everybody's like, oh, we got Fred McGriff. I mean, Fred's <laughs> Fred was like at the time he had multiple years of 30 plus home runs so he was legitimate power hitter i mean it was just as we could have just as well gotten you know uh tony gwynn or barry bonds i mean he was on that caliber of player of course we know now he's going in the hall of fame so he's right there with those guys so i think anytime you do that with a team that's already really really good and then all of a sudden you put a bat like that in your lineup it just psychologically just you just turn things around because now everybody else feels better that okay we get we got a chance now now of course we we didn't know what was going to happen but we knew that next day and then of course he hits a home run the first game then that just kind of like cemented everything that we knew now if he would have come in and struggled you know over the next couple weeks we probably would have like the momentum would have been lost but when you come in and all of a sudden, boom, he propels us to the first win. And then, second, I mean, I can't even remember what our record was, but it was incredible down the stretch. But it all started with Fred coming in and getting hot. And with Fred being uh, who he is, everybody just kind of just jumped on board and all things. And that timely hitting we talked about, it just all clicked. John Smoltz. It ended up being a magical year after that for, for everything that started clicking. Of course, Fred McGriff was such a big part of our 
our run and that trade was so huge, but I'll never forget. I mean, it's just not not normal to see a, a flame that that high uh, in the press box and see the fire department come and put it out. Fred McGriff. For me to be able to hit a home run my first night in Atlanta, it, it was just, it was crazy. Cause you know, I, I wasn't even sure I could swing or not, but to pull that off against the uh, Cardinals was great stuff. And at the time, you know, with us being 10 games back of the Giants, that was probably one of the best pennant races of, uh, of all time. One week prior to the press box fire, Braves pitcher Steve Avery had a conversation with San Francisco Giants slugger Barry Bonds. The 91 and 92 seasons had both ended for Bonds in National League Championship Series losses to the Braves. This time, Bonds was feeling quite confident about his team's chances. You know, everyone always said that kind of helped us catch fire, and and, uh, I I had made the All-Star game that year, so uh, I was shagging in the outfield, and Bonds walked over to me, and he said, we finally got you after the last couple years because we had beaten them, you know, 91, 92, so he... He felt like he had it wrapped up in 93 and, uh, you know, it didn't quite work out that way. And what became of the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium press box? Well, it turns out that it also had a much better second half of the season. I.J. Rosenberg. And Lord and behold, I mean, they got that press box cleaned up and we were going out of town, as I remember. I don't can't remember exactly if we played the next day in Atlanta, but by the time we got back from the road trip, it was great because the press box had gotten kind of nasty. And we had, a, we had sort of a, a new press box. For the players, broadcasters, writers, fans, and everyone who was at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium on July 20th, 1993, it was a night that they will never forget. I mean, you know what it would be like today? If smoke was coming out of the press box, we would be out of there. But the fact that these guys were taking batting practice and this fire is raging. I mean, you see it in the photos, black smoke, flames and everything coming out and none of us thought maybe maybe we should go to someplace where it's safe (laughs) yeah it was it was it was crazy i mean it was crazy but like who knew you know the irony of it and how hot we were going to get after that was pretty crazy that was a a day you say to yourself this probably never going to happen again in, in baseball We hope you've enjoyed Behind the Braves Presents, the day the Braves caught fire. And be sure to check out other episodes of Behind the Braves featuring interviews with Atlanta Braves players, coaches, front office personnel, famous fans, and much more. Special thanks to Steve Avery, Ron Gant, Tom Glavin, David Justice, Mark Lemke, Greg Maddox, Fred McGriff, I.J. Rosenberg, John Sherholtz, Joe Simpson, John Smoltz, and Steve Taylor. The Day the Braves Caught Fire was narrated and edited by Ricky Mast and was brought to you by executive producers Greg McMichael and Ricky Mast. 